I don't, I don't have a clever illustration for you this morning to help you understand the gospel. Um, frankly, it's my prayer that you all remain Christians by the end of this sermon. Um, <laughs> I would consider it a success if you still want to follow Jesus after we look at our gospel. Um, so consider perhaps opening your Bibles, um, whether you have a hard copy or a phone copy. Uh, please, please do that. Open it up to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to um, begin, really begin around verse 27, which is where our reading began this morning. There's a little bit of backstory that is helpful, I think, to understanding our passage. So Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Um, and we're going to begin, and, and what we are going to talk about this morning is the disciples, and consequently us, seeing and understanding who Jesus is. This passage involves seeing and understanding. It's not just merely seeing Jesus, but actually understanding the implications of that. So what is going on at this point in Mark's gospel? Well, Jesus has withdrawn at this point by the time we get to verse 27 with his disciples up to the northern part of the country, Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. Um, they're out in the country, okay? Basically think of it like that. They've gone on a retreat. Jesus and his disciples have retreated out to the countryside for some teaching. Two important things have just happened. Jesus has had two um, miraculous feedings, one of 5,000 and one of 4,000. And after the feeding of the 4,000, they're still around Lake Galilee, and they journey to the other side of the lake, and the disciples begin complaining of all things, of the fact that they have no bread. Jesus has just fed 4,000 people on a few loaves of bread, and they've had seven baskets left over, but the disciples are complaining about this. And Jesus says to them in verse 18, he says, Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, we had 12 baskets. When I did the 4,000, we had seven. Do you not see? And then he goes on and he says, Do you not yet understand? The disciples don't see and they don't understand. So immediately after this complaining and after this not seeing and not understanding, Jesus heals a blind man. He comes upon a blind man in the town of Bethsaida, and he heals him. He heals him um, in, in, in two ways. He, he gets the man. He brings him out of the city. He spits in his eyes, which is kind of gross, but that's what he does. He spits in his eyes, and he says, do you see? The man says, well, I, I do. I see people, but they look like trees. Walking. I see, but not, not clearly. So Jesus lays his hands on him, and he prays for him, and the man's eyes are opened, and he can see clearly. And Jesus says, don't go back to your village, go home, and don't tell anybody what has happened. And so he, he pulled the man out of the city, he gave him sight to see fuzzily to see with a distorted view, and then he gave him eyes to see clearly. And now we have Jesus, and he's actually reenacting with his disciples that story of this giving sight to the blind man. They don't see, right? They don't understand who Jesus is. So he takes them away. He takes them out into the countryside, and he begins to give them sight, and he begins to give them understanding about who he really is. 
Mark wants us in this passage to see clearly who Jesus is and to understand fully what this means. So let's read starting at verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So they've gone out in the country, and the first question Jesus asked his disciples, relatively mundane question, relatively easy question to answer, who do other people say that I am? Now the crowds um, have an understanding that Jesus is somebody significant. And so the disciples have been mingling with the people and, and they know who they think Jesus is. They know the rumors going around. They know what people are saying. And they say, listen, some think you're John the Baptist. Other people think you're Elijah. Others say you're one of the prophets. Clearly, these people think something big is going on. That Jesus perhaps is even a prophet in line with the great prophets of the old testament something significant is happening in jesus ministry but this answer is not enough for jesus because he goes on and he probes them okay they say that i am this but who do you say that i am how would you answer that who do you say that i am jesus wonders these disciples have a moment of clarity not seen before or after in Mark's gospel by any living person except for a Roman soldier. And Peter responds, speaking for all of them, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the one who has come to redeem Israel. You are the one who's come to save us from these, these oppressors. Save us and restore the kingdom of God. You, Jesus, are the Christ. They get it. They get it. And in Matthew's account of this story, Jesus says, yes, you're right. Blessed are you, Peter. Blessed are you for knowing this, for, for having the gift to see this. It's not of your own doing. It is only from God that you can confess who I am. But yes, you are right. I am the Christ. But the disciples, okay, it's like the story of the blind man. They, they're starting to see, but they don't really understand. Because this idea of Jesus, the Messiah, comes filled with preconceived notions, whether it's um, a military ruler coming to overthrow these evil oppressors, or the disciples, maybe they didn't think this at, at this point, but, but, but clearly he is the one to come and restore the earthly kingdom of God. The disciples and most of the Jews at this point would see the Messiah as someone to fix the problems out there. Someone to fix the problems of people out there doing bad things to us in here. That is their understanding of the Messiah and it needs to be corrected so they can see Jesus, right? But they don't understand. They can see him, but they don't understand. And Jesus knows this. 
And so he says um, right there at, at verse 33, no, verse uh, 30, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. He knew that if this got out, all of these preconceived notions, these ideas of who the Messiah is supposed to be, what he is supposed to be doing, he knew that that would totally derail his mission, totally derail his ministry. He had to, he had to get the understanding straight before this could go out into the public. And so the next thing he does, verse 31, he began to teach them. He began to teach the disciples, began to help them understand that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so Jesus begins this very hard mission of changing the disciples' understanding of who the Messiah is. The Messiah isn't going to overthrow the powerful authorities in Jerusalem. The Messiah isn't going to drive the Romans out of the Israelite land. No, this Messiah was going to be turned over to the authorities, turned over to Pontius Pilate, turned over to the Roman soldiers. He's going to be killed and crucified. What kind of Messiah hangs on a cross? This is unacceptable to Peter. Unacceptable. Jesus, I gave up my fishing life. I had a great life. I could fish all day long. And then I could sell my fish and make some money. I wasn't rich and it was hard work, but, but, but I gave up a boat and my nets and my fish to follow you. And now you're telling me you're going to die? That's not what messiahs do. Messiahs are supposed to beat the bad guys, not get not get killed by them. So Peter he calls Jesus aside, right? He says, Jesus, come here. I don't think that's what messiahs are supposed to do. And the strongest rebuke in all of the Gospels is reserved for Jesus' 12 disciples. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Your eyes are on the things of man and not on the things of God. They see that Jesus is the the, the Messiah. But they're blinded. They, They can't understand. They're blinded by their misconceptions of what this means. How do you see Jesus? What are your blinders? No one in this room, no one, myself included, fully understands Jesus and what it means for him to be the Messiah. Just as the disciples um, could see Jesus and yet their understanding was blinded by their preconceived notions, I I think we come to Jesus with these same blinders on. We have preconceived notions of who Jesus is and what he is supposed to be doing. We, we recognize Jesus. Very few of us in this room, I'm guessing, don't recognize Jesus. 
but we don't understand and we don't fully see what he's about. And so we, we see him, but what we really want is a political Jesus, right? A Jesus who's going to fix this nation. We want a Jesus who's going to help our social life and our status. We want a Jesus who's going to make our finances comfortable. We want a Jesus who's going to make us perfect parents or give us perfect children or perfect friends. That's the kind of Messiah we want. And, and it's not, we're not all sold out one way or the other. Sometimes we're great. and we, we get it. We know what it means to suffer for Christ. But, but other times we don't. And we want this Messiah who's going to fix our little pet problems and make our lives easier. But if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to understand who he is, we've got to give these things up. We've got to turn our blinders over to see who he really is. We've got to give up the things of man to pursue the things of God. The simple fact of the matter is if we want to understand and see Jesus, if we want to follow him, it means we must be willing to give up who we are and what we desire so that we can know who Jesus is and what he desires. And so we read on, verse 34. Jesus rebukes Peter and the disciples, and then he calls the crowds to him. He says, listen up, everybody, come here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you're going to follow Jesus, this is what it will look like. Now, this is very important. This is not a prescription. This is not, Jesus doesn't say, okay, if you want to get to me, do these things. Okay, he doesn't say, if you want to get to me, you've got to give up your life and deny yourself and um, not be ashamed of me. Once you do these three things, you can have Jesus. That's not how it works, okay? Jesus says, if you have me, this is what your life will look like. If you receive me as your Messiah, these things will happen. This is a description of a follower of Jesus. Self-denial. Giving up of your life. Taking on your cross. That's what it means to follow Jesus. To give up who you are so that you might be crucified with Christ and follow him and serve him. Or how about like this last one? There, there's, there's all sorts of things in here that are convicting. This one convicted me. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. I remember this has happened four or five times in, in college. And then when I was working as an engineer, I might go to church. or I might have a meeting after work at church. I might leave work early to go to a meeting at church, something like that. And, and my boss asked me or my coworkers say, well, where are you going? And I'll say, well, I'm... I'm going to church. 
I was okay saying that, or I'm going to Alpha, or whatever it is. I'm going to Bible study. And then this, some, a couple of people would say this to me, and it was really convicting. I didn't know your faith was so important to you. I didn't know your faith was so important to you. Would your friends know that? That your faith is important to you? Are you sort of hiding that? You see, following Jesus, it looks radically different from this world. It requires boldness and and self-denial and giving up your life, not because you have to or not because this is a, a checklist of things to do, but because your love of Christ and Christ's love for you compels you. And it takes time. And it takes the Holy Spirit working on your heart day in and day out. One of my uh, favorite theologians, he's an Anglican from the 18th century, 19th century. Uh, his name is J.C. Ryle. He, he wrote this about this passage. Let us often ask ourselves whether our Christianity costs us anything. Does it entail any sacrifice? Does it carry with it any cross? If not... We may well tremble and be afraid. A religion which costs nothing is worth nothing. It will do us no good in this life that now is, and it will lead to no salvation in the life to come. Do you have a crossless Christianity? You know what that means to have a crossless Christianity, a Christianity without the cross, a Christianity that, that, that costs nothing? Follow Jesus is hard. This is, I mean, this is, it's hard. And you're like, wow, this is, what a bummer of a sermon, Tyler. <laughs> but this is good news. The, the, the Christianity would be hard. I, I'm telling you this morning, it is good news, okay? And this is why. We don't need simply to be rescued from an evil world, okay? That's not, that's not the primary message of Christianity. That is, that is part of it. There is evil in this world that, that certainly needs rescuing and will be redeemed. But we don't only need rescuing from this world. First, we need the rescue of our own hearts, We need the rescue of our own souls. The disciples, they're not blinded to who Jesus is because the world is bad and they are good. They they, they know that the world is bad. There's no, there's no, there's evil in the world. Not necessarily the whole world is bad, but but there's evil and oppression in this world. They, They know that. The reason they're blinded isn't because of other people, but it's because of their own hearts. And the first thing that has to happen to them is have a heart change. Jesus has to come in and give them his heart so that they would want his things. And to have the desires and your deepest desires challenged and changed is a painful thing, right? So to follow Jesus, we're going to have to give some of these things up. And it's hard. And then when that begins to happen, when our hearts begin to change, we think, well, thank God, I'm starting to get this, and I'm starting to follow Jesus, we realize that the hearts of everybody else around us have stayed the same. And then all of a sudden, we're swimming upstream. 
And it's hard. It's hard to swim upstream and follow Jesus. Imagine, perhaps, if you were a Carolina fan in the Clemson student section. Or a Clemson fan in the Carolina student section. And you were cheering your guts out for your team. How's that going to go? You know? That's what it's like. When the hard work of our hearts being changed is done, the hard work of, of, of living that out in this world begins. And sometimes we, get, we bounce back and forth. Our hearts are changed. We live it out. We need it in the heart change. It, it's hard. But it's good news. Because if there was no cross and if following Jesus was easy, then heaven would be a lot like this world right now. Heaven would be a lot like this world right now. And that's not great news, at least in my mind. There's some great things, but there's some not so good things. And so we've got to see and to understand Jesus clearly, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is a gift, friends. This isn't something you can conjure up. Um, it's not something you can pray really hard about and, and, and well it up within yourself. You, you have to have some help from the outside. You have to have the Holy Spirit. And, and so there is prayer involved, but it involves asking God to give you faith and to give you the Holy Spirit, not welling something up inside of you that would see Jesus clearly on your own. And you spiritualize a gift from God to know who Jesus fully is. And when we see that, then we'll realize that Jesus didn't come to give us financial success. He didn't come to make us better parents. He didn't come to make us harder workers. He didn't come to give us a cozy and comfortable life in Somerville, South Carolina. He came to save our souls, and he came to redeem the world. And that means things are going to change, and things are going to be hard, and we have to give up our lives to follow him. It cost Jesus his life to save our souls. And if we receive that, it's going to cost us our lives as well. We too will be crucified with Christ. And we too will be raised with Christ. So that we might know the hope that is beyond all hope. The hope of the presence of God and the kingdom of God coming down to this earth. The hope of no more sin and no more evil and no more tears. The hope of one day seeing Jesus in the flesh without blinders and knowing that we are finally home. Let's pray.